Hello, and welcome to the Objective Health Show. My name is Erica, and I will be your host today. And joining me is Doug and Elliot. Hello. 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 So today we're talking about attention, paying attention. Attention is the act of or state of applying the mind to something. So is your attention on this video right now? Or maybe you should pay attention. It's also a condition of readiness for such attention involving especially a selective narrowing or focusing of consciousness and receptivity. So many times you'd hear a teacher say, students, do I have your attention? It's also the ability of observation to notice things. So what do you guys think? Are you here? Are you attentive? Mm. It's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting topic because it seems to be more and more people are talking about attention. Like uh, I think with the rise of what they're calling like ADD and ADHD, and I guess we'll probably talk a little bit about that later on. But uh, like it seems seems to me anyway that attention wasn't something that was talked about quite so often before, and that it's more of an issue now. And I don't know if that's maybe an awareness thing. Like people are just becoming more aware of attention because it's being talked about. Like, does it, did anybody before really think like, I, I guess what I'm thinking is that a lot of people didn't really think that they had a problem with attention back in the day. Is that because they didn't have a problem of, with attention or just because now it's, it's kind of, people are more aware of it and they're like, wow, I actually, I'm not really able to pay attention as much as maybe I think I should. Yeah. Is it that we took it for granted before? Mm. Um, before human beings started thoroughly studying things like cognitive psychology, neuroscience, and really trying to flesh out the details of how the brain works and how human beings kind of navigate experience, how we function. Um, was it just that we took these things for granted just as part of normal human experience? Um, but since these concepts and the science and things have kind of fleshed things out a little bit, is it that now we're becoming more aware that one, it can be a tool that can be used, but two, we're becoming more aware of how little we actually make use of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. Well, it's interesting in doing research for this show, cause there's different types of attention and scientists have been studying these mechanisms and of attention for the past 40 years. And really the field is uh, concentrated um, with the concern for attention de development in children. So like you were saying, Elliot, maybe we didn't think about it much until it started to be studied because as we can see in our modern day life, you know, especially with children, there's this ongoing issue with attention. And so just a little bit of background on what types of attention we're going to focus on today. Um, attention has its own circuitry of the brain. So it's, a, again, with that idea of neuroscience studying that part of the brain. And it's got specialized networks that carry out different forms. So there's three kind of forms that we all know of. One is orienting. So they call this like the flashlight of the mind. Um, so, you know, orienting yourself in your environment and 
when it comes to children, this is largely in place by age five or kindergarten. So a child knows the difference when they're inside or outside or it's day or night. There's a spectrum of response states. So like sleepiness or being alert and awake. And then there's executive attention. And I think that's kind of what we're focusing on here that planning, judgment, resolving conflicting information and in children that's largely in place by the age of eight but it develops way into the 20s and um, with that executive attention there's a tiny kind of ancient part of the brain called the anterior cingulate and um, they're finding now that that's at the heart of our higher order thinking skills and it lets us move beyond our impulsive selves and actually helps us plan for the future and even understand abstraction. So attentional control or concentration can be easy and natural. And I think we're kind of losing sight of that as you both have said. Yeah. Because it does seem like, although the, the focus seems to be on kids in a lot of cases like ADD, ADHD, <clears throat> the kid's inability to pay attention for very long, maybe because it's more pronounced in children. But I know, you know, recently um, there was a, a guy I was speaking to, kind of an older guy, and he was saying, I think I have ADD. And I was kind of like, well, why Why do you think that? And he's kind of like, well, you know, I can't, um, when I'm reading, um, I find that my mind starts to wander and I realize I've read an entire page and I haven't paid attention to anything. And I have to go back to the beginning of that page. And I think that's not really an uncommon um, experience, especially if you're reading something that's maybe not super engaging or you're not like super interested in, <clears throat> excuse me, or even you know a part of a book or um, web page or document or something like that that's not quite as interesting as the other ones. Or, you know, sometimes I find if I, I come across something that makes me think of something else, a lot of times suddenly my, my mind isn't on what I'm reading anymore. So I think it's, it's an interesting question about whether or not there actually is a change in people's attention recently, or if it's just that people are becoming more aware of it. You know, like we said at the top of the show, it's, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting question because as you become more aware of attention... And this is what Elliot was saying before. It's like you suddenly start to like the first thing you notice is like how little of it you actually have. I think that's it. It is an interesting question. And I think it's nuanced because I guess if we look at our modern world, um, things have changed quite drastically, even in the past decade. And, and this has been like exponential growth in terms of um, the amount of information that we have accessible to us at any given moment. So, for instance, if I was around 100 years ago, I would have my immediate environment. My brain is scanning that whole immediate environment and my my attention may not be on... um, everything in my environment but to some extent there's almost a limit of information that is available to my sort of sensory organs mm-hmm. yeah whereas in our modern world we have access to smartphones we have access to um 
I mean, we're bombarded with information on all levels all of mm-hmm. the time, especially if you live in a city. Yeah. And so building up upon what you just said, Doug, about when you're, you know, the context of reading a book and then something else coming into your mind you're thinking about something and then that drawing your attention away. Mm-hmm. Well, in our modern world, perhaps there are many more variables or many more factors which can now influence us and um, divert our attention away from our immediate environment or away from the task which we originally set our attention on and actually... Um, almost a bit like a bombardment and, and yeah. much of it, is, it seems to be unnecessary information as well. Not yeah. necessarily useful information. It's interesting though, because I guess maybe this is just a little quibble, but I'm, I'm thinking that maybe even in ancient societies or whatever, like say hunter gatherers out on the plane, there probably was in quantity as much to pay attention to, you know, there was like, as as a, a, the amount of kind of input that was coming in, it was probably relatively the same. But I think the difference is that we're kind of in an environment now where things are actively trying to get your attention. And they use all these little tricks and stuff. I'm thinking of like advertising, you know, sign fronts on stores, like different people, different like music coming from different places, like all these things that are kind of designed to capture your attention. Um, as opposed to being in nature where it's just kind of things are there and you can pay attention to them, but it's not necessarily actively trying to get your attention. It's not using psychological tricks to draw your eye and like certain colors that will, will suck you in or something like that. Um, so I think that maybe that's the big difference, not necessarily the quantity, but maybe the the quality of of things that you're surrounded by. Yeah, I agree. And it seems that it's harder and harder to focus with just sitting and reading a book. It's like your life has become so inundated, just like what you're saying, that you don't have the time or the mind wanders. Instead of sitting and reading a book and and having those moments of mind wandering, but you come back to the book and you're relating. It's like you're making those connections and with all the distractions around, it's like we have become hyper vigilant to not pay attention, you know, to, to almost turn it off, almost as a, as a survival mechanism. And I'm speaking for myself here. Yeah, I think... Um yeah, it's 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 really it's it's there's so much to kind of tease apart in all of this. I mean, I think that one thing seems pretty clear, and that is that the necessity of kind of training your attention seems to have become more necessary recently. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's so easy now to constantly be distracted, um, especially the cell phones, like having that little beeping thing in your pocket that is constantly vying for your attention. That is so easy like you know i don't think that there were these these kinds of distractions previously like even like you were saying elliot 10 years ago like i don't think that those things really existed now it's like there is constantly every couple of minutes something that's kind of like could take your attention away 
And I think that people are kind of becoming acclimatized to that and losing the ability to concentrate for extended periods of time on what needs to be concentrated on. Like you think about somebody who is like writing a book in Victorian times, right? They they could put themselves in a room, tell their servant or their family or whatever, listen, I don't want to be disturbed. And essentially, they wouldn't be disturbed. And there wasn't a lot of stuff that could distract them. I mean, they could, obviously, their mind could wander. They could get distracted by a book in the room or something like that. But essentially, they could, they could you know, if they had the discipline, could sit there and kind of work on what they needed to work on. Now, it's kind of at the point where there's this constant thing by your side. And unless you have the the foresight to think in advance what could possibly distract me and to move away from that. And it's not even necessarily the the cell phone too. I mean, the fact that we're working on computers and a computer has automatically in there all these different things that can kind of distract you and that it's so easy to be distracted too. Like even things that you're working on, like I find if I'm doing work on something, like working on an article and I'll think, oh, you know, this is kind of, uh, this thought is kind of connected to this thought and maybe I could kind of... uh, work that in a little bit so it's like oh what was that video i saw oh yeah and then you go onto youtube and you check the video and then like oh there's suggested videos down the side and that leads you to this and this and this and it's very easy even even if you start out related to get to get to a point where you're not anymore and it's like you've completely diverted from your task so i think that now it's almost like we need training we need to train ourselves to maintain attention which seems, yeah. uh, well, I mean, you know, this is going off in another direction, but I mean, the, the Buddhists have been telling us this for like <laughs> how many thousands of years, but, um, but now it seems even more important than it was previously. Well, and it seems like too, that uh, there's this inability to kind of tap into your creativity or to have those sustained concentration or attention attentional controls like you were saying in in old times you know you could sit in a room and you'd have those thoughts flow and you could maybe even write them down or or take mm-hmm. note of that but it, it seems like now and maybe this is why it's becoming such a focus in neuroscience is because that creativeness has kind of slipped away and especially in a in a in a job where you you have to create whatever it is advertising or videos or writing articles it's like people are really struggling with that they can't quite focus enough to get their real deep creative thoughts down and everything is scattered i have a little quote here by william james which i think pertains nicely to our discussion. And it says, geniuses of all kinds excel at their capacity for sustained voluntary attention. Just think of the world's greatest musicians, mathematicians, scientists, and philosophers throughout history. All of them, it seems, have an extraordinary capacity to focus their attention with a high degree of clarity for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you two, but focusing high degree of clarity for long periods of time can be a struggle. Yeah. Indeed. I, um, I would have said that that was, um, perhaps a personal quality that I thought I was, that I thought I, um, I was quite good at, but actually over the past few months, I've kind of tried to keep an eye on this and it's quite amazing the amount of times I spend checking my email, mm-hmm. 
when I'm when I've got a task to do, um, it, try to dedicate yourself to a task. Perhaps you're writing something, or you're, or you're doing some research or something. And I'm sure in one hour, uh, I must check my email maybe fifteen, twenty times. Yeah, I, I mean that, that's, that's uncommon. Com- it's completely unnecessary. Complete because it doesn't change most of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't change. It's just, um, but it's, 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 uh, yeah, it certainly, it throws you off track and you need to use discipline not to do that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, what I have personally noticed, and I'm sure many people find this because this is what happens, is that once you do divert away from the task at hand, you lose the attention, and then your attention can be drawn onto whatever else. Mm-hmm. And the internet is full of attention grabbers. And, and your attention is then drawn onto something which you have not consciously intended it to be drawn to. And that, I think that's the real problem because... You know, if you can consciously focus your attention on 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 a, on achieving a goal, achieving a task, performing a job, that is a real good thing. And and as you just said, Erica, you know, if you can sustain that, then you can do really amazing things with that. Amazing things. But when that attention is drawn away, and actually when you are unconsciously allowing it to be taken up by essentially trash then it gets to the end of the day and you feel like you've got nothing done exactly yeah there's actually um just related to this topic there was a book by a guy named cal newport and it was called deep work rules for focus success in a distracted world and he talks about something really interesting. I haven't actually read the book, so I shouldn't I shouldn't try and say like, you know, act like I had the attention to necessary to actually finish that book. But uh, I was reading an article about it. Anyway, he talks about something that's called um attention residue. And what that is is basically that every time you switch tasks, um your brain is kind of like left with the previous task to a certain extent. Um, particularly if that task wasn't completed. So if you're in the middle of something and an email comes in and then you switch over and say, oh, okay, now I'm going to do, uh, you know, check this email, etc., etc., your attention is still partly with the task you were previously doing. And then when you go back to that task, it's partly still on the email, especially if that hasn't been re- resolved. So what that means is that your attention is no lo- it's now divided. It's no longer on a single task. It's on several and you add several different things into that. So you've got the email, you've got a text message, you've got um, another project you're thinking about, what you're going to be doing, you know, making for dinner or something like that. All those things are something that are a draw on your attention. So it, this, is, this is something that kind of he has like some rules um, that he sets down um, to, to try and deal with this issue. Um, and rule number one of deep work, again, his book was called deep work and deep work is kind of what he says is like actually sustained, focused attention on a task. Um, and what he says is that, uh, the number one is that you don't wait for the right time to come up to, to d- engage in deep work. So it's like, you don't, you don't sit there and wait until you feel like, okay, there's not too much going on right now. So I'm going to do some deep work. He's like, no, you schedule that. You have to fight for it. You can't, you can't just like, you know, 
whenever whenever in the day i happen to have some time i'm going to do some deep work it's like he the whole point is that you have to kind of schedule that in and fight against those distractions um it's a very active process and rule number two he says is to embrace boredom he says part of the problem is that like we were talking about before all these distractions are around so every time there's any kind of um moment of boredom the Pavlovian response at this point is for us to reach for our phones, check our email, go online, check YouTube, whatever. It's like we don't embrace that sense of boredom anymore. And I think that we become much more sensitive to the boredom too, and it becomes much less tolerable the more that we tech out, you know, we avoid it. So yeah. um, there is a concept, and he didn't talk about this, but I, it made me think of something actually called a dopamine fast. There's a couple of... Um, uh, videos on YouTube about it that I've watched um, when I was distracted and trying to procrastinate from another task. Um, but the dopamine fast is basically this idea of going through a day where you don't have any distractions. So the rules are like no internet, no reading books, no watching TV. Um, they tell you to journal during it because that's kind of an important part of it. But basically you're, you're putting yourself in a situation of like kind of an isolation where you're not kind of um, distracted by all these things anymore so it kind of like it's like a reset um, to kind of make it so you're not suddenly having this uh, crazy dopamine response every time there's any kind of uncomfortable or bored situation but anyway getting back to the deep work thing no, rule number three is quit social media and that's going to be uh, that's going to be a difficult one for some people because uh, I think that um, I mean, let's be honest, social media is like probably 85% of everybody's kind of distraction on a daily basis. And this author, Cal Newport, actually says that he never joined social media. So he's like, I'm probably missing out on stuff, but I don't detect it. Like, I have no idea. So, and the the last one that he says is to, to do something that he calls drain the shallows. And it's like shallow work is kind of the, the opposite of, of, uh, of deep work. So shallow work is kind of like all those things like checking your email and all those little tasks that they aren't necessarily bad, but they're the things that kind of like can constantly put a drain on your attention. So it's kind of like you can drain those shallows, like you don't let your schedule be dominated by those things. So it's like you're not doing that stuff daily over the course of, um, you know, an hour when you're supposed to be doing like more deep work you can maybe schedule those things for an off time. So it's kind of like, okay, I am going to do two hours of deep work right now. That means I'm not going to do any shallow work during that time. I'm not going to balance my checkbook. I'm not going to uh, check my email. I'm not going to check social media or any of those kinds of things. Those are all <clears throat> as, as important as they might be. They are draining from that kind of deep work. And one thing that he says is like the perspective on it. Um, that I think is important is that don't think of the fact that shallow work isn't important because it might be. It might be like important, although it's distracting. It's like you have to just realize how important deep work is and put more value onto that. So then you're kind of more likely to put, well, yeah, value onto it and actually set aside time and, and, and kind of work um, to to make some time to actually do that. Anyway. Yeah, that, I found reading his stuff interesting i haven't read the book either but about how and please correct me if i'm wrong but how when you get distracted like elliot was talking about how you can't just jump back into the deep work that it takes 
time. Like uh, he, he made the analogy to you don't just lay your head down on the pillow and fall asleep. You have to kind of get back into that mindset. And um, these distractions and interruptions that we have in our daily life really makes that it's like a rolling a, a huge boulder uphill, you know, especially, I don't know if you two have worked in menial jobs in the sense where you're on the, <laughs> oh, yeah. the phone and the, the computer and you're dealing with customers. And, you know, I think of something like the food service industry as, as a perfect example as well about like, you're just running around like a, chicken with your head cut off trying to do everything and you're you're distracted and you're interrupted constantly and then it's almost like it grooves those places in your brain where now you can't have deep work at all that your your job is just essentially shallow work you know yeah. if that makes sense you know so i feel like maybe the higher up in the corporate model people go maybe they have more time for that deep work where they can turn off their phones and close their door and not be interrupted but for people that are working in these other types of jobs it's just constant bombardment and it's no wonder at the end of the day that most people come home and watch tv or play video games or play you know candy crush on their phone i don't know <laughs> it's it's interesting that you that you say that actually because there is a physiological component to this um or at least i think there is there's an energetic component to this anyway in that attention focused attention conscious attention requires energy requires the brain's energy and it would therefore be theoretically possible that the influences it could be stress it could be illness it could be i mean it could be poor diet it could be any number of things but if there is something stopping your brain making enough energy or if you've just had a really long day and you're kind of a bit depleted maybe there's a bit of adenosine been built up in the brain um then it's possible that you may not actually have the resources to be able to to focus that attention effectively there was one study um which basically um they they wanted to measure it was actually measuring the difference between attention and awareness so they were they basically differentiated the two and they said that what we often find we we often assume that attention and be paying attention to something and being aware of something are the same things but they they're actually saying well no they're not the same things um as part of this experiment basically what they did was um they had like these video screens set up in front of the people like someone's eyes. So you had one video screen up against the right eye and then a different screen up against the left eye. And so on the one, um, on the one video screen, they were basically, um, showing really vibrant colors and all of these different things. Uh, and then on the other video screen, on the other eye, it was really quite bland. Um, most of the shapes were green. Um, and then there was one that was red. And they basically showed that the, um, the subject's attention was immediately drawn 
to the bright and vibrant colors. Um, but then the researchers found that the people's attention basically on the other side, when the screens screens were green, the attention was not there. But then what they found was that immediately when the red one came on, um, that their attention was brought onto the red one, even though they had no idea um, that they were, I'm not explaining this very well. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I can't remember no. the details of the study, so I'm reading it out. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you were explaining it well. It was basically that they were just like, even though they had all this stimulation on the one eye, it's like the one one new piece of information on the other eye kind of brought it out. Is that right? Or yeah, their no, but that's, no, that's not the point. No. Oh. <laughs> I do apologize. See, my attention, I don't know where my attention is today. <laughs> um, no, yeah, basically, they, these researchers, they formed an experiment, and what they basically found was that you needed brain power to pay attention to something. Um, and so that brain power has to come from somewhere, and that there's lots of factors which can affect how well the brain makes energy. So. Yeah. Um, you know, in response to your point, Erica, in a very simplified <laughs> way, basically, you know, it's understandable. Someone is is on such a stressful job, they're pushed all day, and then they come back. And do they even have the the you know the actual energy substrate to be able to to focus their attention deeply on something? And it's mm. probably not. Yeah, I mean this distracted interrupted state that we all kind of navigate through every day it just pulls you away i mean some of the definitions are you know being scattered i I feel like that's a really good kind of word to explain it you know um and it these interruptions cause stress and frustration they lower your creativity and when you're scattered and stressed and your attention is diffused um you know, you, you, you can't function health in a healthy manner, but your reflection on whatever it is becomes punctured. You can't go into deep problem solving, um, into relating either to other people or into mm-hmm. thinking clearly. And, and, and I speak of this because I've raised kids and <laughs> it's really when you have so much going on it's really easy to see how that happens and how it happens quickly and your threshold becomes overwhelmed and Mm. of course it almost seems like a human response to just shut down do you do you guys know what i mean like oh i'm just gonna zone out you know yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i think and i think it does have a lot to do with energy like uh like elliot's saying um And, you know, just bringing it back to diet, I mean, that does definitely seem like um, a good way to, you know, I don't know that you'd necessarily like change your diet and suddenly you have more attention. Or even if even if you did, if you would necessarily even notice that. But it certainly is by changing the diet and uh, to be more efficient, then you're going to have more energy and the potential at least is there that you could have more attention. Yeah. 
Well, even something like caffeine, you know, coffee or tea, things like that, those kind of stimulants too, you know, people who have a hard time staying on task, well, they think, oh, I'll just drink a cup of coffee. And, you know, that can go either way (laughs) for a lot of people, you know, can make it can make it even more intense and more scattered. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. I find that like it's not it's not like, you know, ADHD medication or something like that. Sometimes, you know, I can have a coffee and it's great, you know, suddenly I'm on task and I'm good and I'm um, you know, doing what I need to do, but other times it's like it just increases the scatteredness. Just uh Yes. puts you all over the place. And sugar too, you know, sweets. People feel, you know, tired or overwhelmed so they go to something sweet to think that that's going to pick them up and then that can have a cascading effect as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think with the sugar, that's um, maybe a bit, well, it's, it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Because <laughs> generally with sugar, you're going to have, you're going to have a crash after the boost if you even do get a boost off of it. So I think generally using sugar, you know, like I just think about like kids at birthday parties or something like that after they've had all the cake and ice cream and they're like just completely wound up and going crazy. And then, you know, it, you can see the crash once all the, st- the the tears and the tantrums start happening. So I think that yeah, things like that. Yeah, there's a meltdown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, generally that's happening in adults too. It's just that they react a little bit differently. It's like uh, they're having an internal tantrum instead of an external one in many cases. Yeah, it's not responsible behavior to just lay down on the floor and start crying and screaming. <laughs> no. Generally not. <laughs> Well, I know we do have a video um, for our listeners about attention, and this is actually a good little test to see how well you pay attention. So, Damien, if you want to play the speaking of chocolate Hershey Kiss video. (laughs) (laughs) This is the show game. I'm going to hide this Hershey's Kiss under this cup and the object is for you to pay attention and follow along and try to guess which cup the Hershey's Kiss is under at the end. Which one is it, Elliot? Is it in the left cup, the middle <laughs> cup, or the right cup? <laughs> Let's check the left cup. The middle cup? If you guess the middle cup, you got it right. So now we're going to make it a little more complicated. I've added an extra pair of hands, and I've added additional colors here. but. That's only to distract you from the pink cups. The pink cups will always have, one of the pink cups will always have the Hershey Kiss underneath. So let's get started.
can you guess where the Hershey Kiss is? Wow. <laughs> oh, look at that. I, I got the first one. I got the first one. I didn't get the second one. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, I didn't even see the fifth hand. <laughs> beginning oh very clever <laughs> right again You're so good. yeah it's, uh, it, it's interesting you know that I actually had um, watched that previously and I was kind of I was kind of primed because I knew it was a selective attention test and I've done these ones before and uh, so I did notice the duck and I did notice the colors change. I didn't notice the other hands, though. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Kind of, I think if I hadn't been primed for it, I probably wouldn't wouldn't have noticed any of those kinds of things. Because so these selective attention tests I've done in the past, I've been completely blown away. At, like what? Never knew that those things were happening. <laughs> It's interesting, though, because it, it just shows you the difference between, like, awareness and attention, um, or the types of attention, I guess, in a way, because it's like you, so, you get so hyper-focused on one thing that everything else around is, you know, you, you're just completely unaware of. And, you know, I see that kind of happen in my daily life all the time. It's like I'm so focused on something like finding an address or something, you know, just um, making my way through a crowd or something like that, and that you don't notice all these other things. Um, yeah, and it's it's kind of like it, it makes you really realize how kind of limited your attention actually is. Well, and again, I think it's kind of a survival mechanism because, you know, you're getting so much bits of information all the time that you kind of have to like scan your environment for what's most pressing, like uh, with the crowd scenario, you know, I'm not a big crowd person, but just getting from A to B, you know, I have to just get through it. And then you don't, you miss all the, the details around you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess it's kind of like, it's just like what the appropriate type of attention is, I guess. Because, you know, it is good to have that kind of deep focus, that kind of really um, <clears throat> narrowing in on one thing and paying attention to that one thing. I mean, that's good to have that ability. And it's kind of like, it, it, in a way, the test is kind of like cheating in a way because it's, 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 it's priming you to use that type of attention um, and then being like, oh, yeah, by the way, you should have been using another type of attention, which is like paying attention to what's actually going on all around as well. Yeah. Dr. Jeremy Dean from Cyblog um, has written about this in the past, um, basically talking about the exploratory um, and distributive attention <clears throat> that children pay to their environment. 
So um, when you compare the type of attention that an adult um, will will pay in a given situation, it's it's um, or the the research shows that it's generally more focused. So they can read uh, an adult will be able to reel off more details about a particular thing, but at the same time will will be able to provide less information about everything else in that area, in that environment. Whereas a child is less able to, um, is less able to kind of focus in solely on one particular thing, but they are able to, to sort of distribute their attention more widely. Um, and so they can take, they can see things um, almost in like a wider context. And I think it's theorized the reason why this is for children anyway is because it increases learning. It helps them put things into context, like seeing that a tree is next to the grass is next to the, you know, I don't know. I can't think of an example, but (laughs) being able to put everything like pieces of the puzzle together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas an adult learns, learns that fairly early on, you know, by the age of like five or six or something. Um, and then they can start learning about how things work and the details of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in one of these articles in particular, you know, he's talking about how we should be looking, or he's, he's quoting a professor, Professor Slautsky. I think he's a like a biopsychologist or something. And he's basically saying that we can learn from, from observing children and actually shifting our attention, shifting our focus from being sort of narrow and um, zoned in on one thing, which we are most of the time, um, but actually temporarily kind of shifting out of that. And sometimes rather than becoming engrossed in the details of something, actually taking a step back almost in our awareness and and trying to pay a less specific, more general attention to our to to, to everything in the environment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he cites how there's research showing that the children actually um, noticing and remembering more about a given situation, although they they might not be be able to tell you the specifics. They they actually um, are able to. I mean, there's we've covered this on the show before, but um that 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 scene from the born born identity i think it is but born identity the situational awareness where he's essentially taking a step back and and trying to scan everything mm-hmm. is a little bit of a different different concept but um i think it's a useful exercise that i myself have have tried to do on several occasions and actually find it very difficult mm-hmm. but it's quite calming at the same time um especially if you're the te- type of person who who does tend to become excessively focused on small on 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 narrow kind of concepts and things and or become engrossed in in one thing almost to take a step back and and try try to allow things to sit almost and be absorbed um in a less specific way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's almost yeah, it's like, almost like uh, <laughs> active curiosity, you know, being curious about your environment. 
yeah. don't know if that's what you were going to say. <laughs> no, <clears throat> no. Well, I was going to say it's almost like taking a, a passive approach to um, attention rather than an active approach. I don't know if that's quite right, though. Now, as as I'm saying it, but it's kind. Of, it kind of seems like it's a little bit more like being open and just accepting. <clears throat> excuse me, stopping to smell the roses, perhaps. But mm-hmm. um, as opposed to to being kind of engaged in our, our normal attention. But but to say that our normal attention is active is, is where I'm kind of tripping up a little bit because I think most of the time our attention is falling um, by accident where mm-hmm. wherever it's going to fall. That, um, you know, obviously we have some control over it and, and we'll focus our attention specifically on certain places. But I think in a lot of, a lot of cases... Um, we're still quite passive about where our attention ends up. Um, and like our attention can be grabbed quite easily by different things. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I'm tripping up on the, on the active versus passive thing. Maybe that's not the right way of putting it. Well, to go into a little bit of what I find interesting about what you're saying is this idea of, being busy all the time. And there's an article on SOT that was really inspiring for me to read, and it's called The Disease of Being Busy. And it's basically about just how fast-paced our life has become. And as we've shared earlier in the show, with all this technology and all these things and cars and, and you know, just busyness and how we basically don't have this life where we have time for reflection or leisure, you know, um, somewhere we read, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living for a human. And um, this disease of being busy, and the author repeats several times that let's call it a disease, because that's what it is, can be destructive to our health and well-being and and it saps our energy and i always liken it to being on a hamster wheel you know you're just running 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 you get up first thing in the morning you know what the the statistics about how many people i think like 70% of people never even turn off their phone and 40% of people check their phone within the first five minutes of waking. And that sets the tone for your day. You know, you're up, you're out, you, you know, especially if you're working and you have children or you have all these responsibilities and you never really slow down to smell the roses, as you said, Doug. Hmm. It's funny too, because business seems to be like a, kind of like a badge of honor. It's mm-hmm. like everybody's always talking about how busy they are. It's kind of like, wow. You know, you say, oh, how you doing? Oh, busy. So busy. Everything, you know, my God, I'm so busy. How about you? How are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm busy too. Really busy. It's kind of like, it's like who can be more busy? It's kind of like justifying your existence in a way. It's kind of like, oh, don't worry. I'm, I'm doing things. I'm busy. I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what it seems like to me. I agree. Well, the author says that Uh, tell me you remember you are still a human being and not just a human doing. And I really like that. (laughs) It says, tell me you're more than just a machine checking off items from your to-do list. 
and that have that conversation, that glance, that touch, be that healing conversation, one filled with grace and presence. So in the midst of being kind of sucked into that busyness, how can we practice slowing down and, and you know, taking that extra time to hold the door for someone at the bank or pausing to appreciate the view on your drive to work, all these things. I mean, it's like you said, it's that badge of honor. Like how much can I get done in a day? How can I feel productive? And, and what I think really happens is that people don't want to stop that busyness. And again, I'm speaking for myself here because then you have to actually deal with internally what's going on emotionally, physically, spiritually, you know, yeah. And for, for a lot of us, that's really hard to do. It's funny. I remember, it just made me think, I remember when I was um, at a previous job I had, I was working and, you know, I would, I ended up seeing a guy who, who I work with and I was just kind of like, how's it going, man? Working hard. And he's like, never, man, never. <laughs> and I just started laughing because it was such an unusual response. You know, it's like most people are like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, working hard, working hard. He's just kind of like, nah, absolutely not. I was like, this guy, this guy's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe we should uh, get into the gadget addiction. Should we show the other clip first, do you think? Oh, oh, yeah. I think that would be good. Sorry. See, there's me on my (laughs) hamster wheel just plugging right along. I'm busy. I'm busy here. Do you think it's possible to control someone's attention? Even more than that, what about predicting human behavior? I think those are interesting ideas, if you could. I mean, for me, that'd be the perfect superpower. (laughs) Actually, kind of an evil way of approaching it. But for myself, in the past, I've spent the last 20 years studying human behavior from a rather unorthodox way, picking pockets. When we think of misdirection, we think of something as looking off to the side when actually it's often the things that are right in front of us that are the hardest things to see, the things that you look at every day that you're blinded to. For example, how many of you still have your cell phones on you right now? Great. Double check. Make sure you still have them on you. I was doing some shopping beforehand. (laughs) Now, you've looked at them probably a few times today, but I'm going to ask you a question about them. Without looking at your cell phone directly yet, can you remember the icon in the bottom right corner? Bring them out, check, and see how accurate you were. How'd you do? Show of hands, did we get it? Now that you're done looking at those, close them down, because every phone has something in common. No matter how you organize the icons, you still have a clock on the front. So without looking at your phone, what time was it? You just looked at your clock, right? It's an interesting idea. Now I'll ask you to take that a step further with a game of trust. Close your eyes. I realize I'm asking you to do that while you just heard there's a pickpocket in the room. But close your eyes. Now, you've been watching me for about 30 seconds. With your eyes closed, what am I wearing? Make your best guess. What color is my shirt? What color is my tie? Now open your eyes. By showing hands, were you right? It's interesting, isn't it? Some of us are a little bit more perceptive than others. It seems that way. But I have a different theory about that, that model of attention. 
They have fancy models of attention, Posner's trendy model of attention. For me, I like to think of it very simple, like a surveillance system. It's kind of uh, like you have all these fancy sensories, and inside your brain is a little security guard. For me, I like to call him Frank. So Frank is sitting at a desk. He's got all sorts of cool information in front of him, high-tech equipment. He's got cameras, he's got a little phone that he can pick up, listen to the ears, all these senses, all these perceptions. But attention is what steers your perceptions, is what controls your reality. It's the gateway to the mind. If you don't attend to something, you can't be aware of it. But ironically, you can attend to something without being aware of it. That's why there's the cocktail effect. When you're in a party, you're having conversations with someone, and yet you can recognize your name, and you didn't even realize you were listening to that. Now, for my job, I have to play with techniques to exploit this, to play with your attention as a limited resource. So if I could control how you spend your attention, if I could maybe steal your attention through a distraction. Now, instead of doing it like misdirection and throwing off to the side, instead what I choose to focus on is Frank, to be able to play with the Frank inside your head, your little security guard, and get you, instead of focusing on your external senses, just to go internal for a second. So if I ask you to access a memory, like, what is that? What just happened? Do you have a wallet? Do you have an American Express in your wallet? And when I do that, your Frank turns around. He accesses the file. He has to rewind the tape. And what's interesting is he can't rewind the tape at the same time that he's trying to process new data. Now, I mean, this sounds like a good theory, but I could talk for a long time and tell you lots of things, and they may be true, a portion of them. But I think it's better if I try to show that to you here live. So uh, if I come down, I'm going to do a little bit of shopping. Just hold still where you are. Hello, how are you? It's lovely to see you. You did a wonderful job on stage. You have a lovely watch that doesn't come off very well. Do you have your ring as well? Good, just taking inventory. You're like a buffet. It's hard to tell where to start. There's so many great things. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Hi, sir, could you stand up for me, please? Just right where you are. Oh, Yo, you're married. You follow directions well. That's nice to meet you, sir. You don't have a whole lot inside your pockets. Anything down by the pocket over here? Hopefully so. Have a seat. There you go. You're doing well. Hi, sir, how are you? Good to see you, sir. You have a ring, a watch. Do you have a wallet on you? Uh, well, we'll find one for you. Come on up this way, Joe. Give Joe a round of applause. Come on up, Joe. Let's play a game. Pardon me. Don't think that you need this clicker anymore. You can have that. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Come on up to the stage, Joe. Let's play a little game. Now, do you have anything in your front pockets? Money. All right, let's try that. <laughs> can you stand right over this way for me? Turn around and let's see. If I give you something that belongs to me, this is just something, uh, a half uh, poker chip. Hold out your hand for me. Watch it kind of close. Now, this is a task for you to focus on. Now, you have your money in your front pocket here? Yep. Good. I'm not going to actually put my hand in your pocket. I'm not ready for that kind of commitment. One time a guy had a hole in his pocket, and that was rather traumatizing for me. <laughs> I was looking for his wallet, and he gave me his phone number. It was a big miscommunication. So <laughs> let's do this simply. Squeeze your hand. Squeeze it tight. Do you feel the poker chip in your hand? I do. Would you be surprised if I could take it out of your hand? Say yes? Very. Good. Open your hand. Thank you very much. I'll cheat if you give me a chance. <laughs> Make it harder for me. Just use your hand. Grab my wrist, but squeeze. Squeeze firm. Did you see it go? No. No, it's not here. Open your hand. See, while we're focused on the hand, it's sitting on your shoulder right now. Go ahead and take it off. Now, let's try that again. Hold your hand out flat, open it up all the way. Put your hand up a little bit higher, but watch it close there, Joe. See, if I did it slowly, it'd be back on your shoulder. <laughs> Joe, 
We're gonna keep doing this till you catch it. You're gonna get it eventually, I have faith in you. Squeeze firm, squeeze. You're human, you're not slow. It's back on your shoulder. You were focused on your hand, that's why you were distracted. While you were watching this, I couldn't quite get your watch off, it was difficult. Yet you had something inside your front pocket. Do you remember what it was? Money. Check your pocket, see if it's still there. Is it still there? Oh, that's where it was. Go ahead and put it away. We're just shopping. This trick's more about the timing, really. I'm gonna try to push it inside your hand. Put your other hand on top for me, would you? It's amazingly obvious now, isn't it? It looks a lot like the watch I was wearing, doesn't it? Oh, thanks. But it's only a start. Let's try it again a little bit differently. Hold your hands together, put your other hand on top. Now, if you're watching this little token, this obviously has become a little target. It's like a red herring. If we watch this kind of close, it looks like it goes away. It's not back on your shoulder. It falls out of the air, lands right back in the hand. Did you see it go? It's funny. Little guy, he's union. He works up there all day. If I did slowly, if it goes straight away, it lands down by your pocket. I believe, is it in this pocket, sir? No, don't reach in your pocket. That's a different show. Uh, sorry, that's rather strange. They have shots for that. Can I show him what that is? That's rather bizarre. Is this yours, sir? I have no idea how that works. We'll just send that over there. That's great. I need help with this one. Step over this way for me. Now, don't run away. You had something down by your pants pocket. I was checking mine. I couldn't find everything. But I noticed you had something here. I feel the outside of your pocket for a moment. Down here, I noticed this. Is this something of yours, sir? Is this... I had no idea. That's a shrimp. <laughs> yeah, saving it for later. <laughs> You've entertained all these people in a wonderful way. Better than you know. So we'd love to give you this lovely watch as a gift. <laughs> Hopefully it matches his taste. Uh, but also, we have a couple of other things. A little bit of cash. Uh and then we have a few other things. These all belong to you, along with a big round of applause from all your friends. Joe, thank you very much. Okay, we could stop it, Daniel. Yeah, so that's pretty humorous, but nonetheless, very interesting, because we can see how kind of limited our attention is. That, um, and how easily somebody who's well-trained can take advantage of that. (laughs) But it's interesting, when I was watching that video, I thought um, that you could kind of look at it from a macro perspective as well, and the way that our attention is controlled on a more macroscopic level, like with the the media, and how they can control attention um, just by what they focus on becomes what is important. Um, it's very easy for them to kind of uh, manipulate attention and to uh, make us kind of control where our attention is um, rather than, you know, kind of be in a situation where it's like I get to decide what my attention is focused on, what I consider to be important, what news stories I want to keep up with, that kind of thing. What the mainstream media tends to be very narrow in what they're focusing on. And what one media station is focusing on is often the same thing that another media station is focusing on. And although they might be giving different spins to it, depending on if they're left wing or right wing, a lot of times just by the simple fact that they are determining what is important is kind of a way that they can control um, our attention and like pulling it along. We're all just like fishes on hooks being pulled. Most definitely. And it can be distracting in a sense, too, when, again, you're trying to focus on one line of thought and there's so much interpretation of everything, it's hard to tease out what that one line of thought is. 
Mm -hmm. For sure. But Erica, you were going to go to uh, something before I interrupted with the video. <laughs> <laughs> Smart smartphones, devices. Yeah, just just yeah, gadgets and attention, and you know we could probably do a whole show on it, and we have in the past. <laughs> but just um, maybe even what you shared earlier, Elliot, as kind of a. a a base to take off on um, with especially working on the computer and having things that you need to do, like um, doing something as is easy as, you know, closing your mail program or closing your social media programs and um, excluding those potentials for distraction. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, if you um, if you can see that it's a problem, as long as you don't try to justify to yourself why it's a, why it's necessary to have these things open, I think if there is some degree of discipline, then complete um, complete isolation or complete <clears throat> um, what's the word avoidance, like uh, like deleting your account or something, isn't necessarily necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for some people, it probably is necessary. I yeah. really do. I think for some people, it is probably going to be the only way that they can kind of get, get a grip of um, the addiction because I think, it can, you know, it can be addictive. Mm -hmm. um, but in t for the average person, um, I find it, it, I mean, it would be really good to be able to sustain, like to be disciplined enough. And that's something that I think we can all work on. But in the meantime, there is a nifty little tool on, um, on, on the internet or on your browser, on your, like uh, say whether you use Firefox or Chrome or something. Um, and it's called, I can't think of the name of it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think I haven't got it installed at the moment but I did. <laughs> I did used to use it and and it was a good um external reminder of how long that you've been on 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 the social media and what you can actually do is you can I mean it's not ideal because we're talking about developing you know one's own um resources to 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 kind of combat these things but uh in the case of someone who's particularly susceptible to this kind of thing but still just kind of wants to get on with their life then um then there are apps and things that you can you can download and they can actually put somewhat of a, a an external control on how long you're actually using these websites for hmm. so you might allocate yourself 10 minutes every two hours and you can do that and they actually block you from going on the website if you oh, they'll actually the block you yeah yeah and you can't you can't get onto that website using that browser at all um i used to do it so i had like 30 minutes a day and that was it mm -hmm. it was all i would use and then if you go over that time you have to wait till the next day to go on it no so kidding. That can be really helpful. Yeah, I will find that. In fact, I'll find the name of that before we finish the show. But yeah, the um, I think that that's a that's a, a like tools like that are definitely a, a good thing. Although, um, 
somebody who's really hooked on it or something would probably find like a workaround, like just use a different browser or something. But yeah, um, I think that one step that people can take is actually just turn off the notifications on, um, on like Facebook and Twitter and all those kinds of things. It's like having a dedicated time to go and check those, like you were saying, half an hour a day sounds reasonable. Um, but I think that a lot of the, the, the issues with attention and being distracted by all the gadgets and stuff is that, that they are constantly pinging you and constantly like asking for your attention. And if you turn those functions off, then you're at least taking a step towards like taking some control back of your attention. Yeah, I noticed that with uh, cell phones, too. I mean, I don't have a super smartphone, but it does have, you know, email and text and whatnot. And just putting it on silent, keeping it, you know, out of your space, like I don't carry it on me all the time. Like I have it if I'm at work, I, ha- I just put it away or, or, you know, even what I mentioned earlier, like not having it in your room, resisting that urge to get on it first thing in the morning that goes for the computer too. you know, giving yourself half an hour to wake up and kind of figure out what you're going to do for the day, but not just you know, going straight to it, like a, like a response to just, I'm going to mm-hmm. check it now. And, um, even putting it on, uh, airplane mode can be helpful too. Yeah. But I think it's important to remember too, that in, in a lot of the cases, um, I'm just, I'm reminded of that picture. Like there's a meme that was going around, right? And it shows all these people, like modern people with their cell phones and they're all just glued to their cell phone. Just like, and then it shows a picture from like 1920s, 30s, something like that. And it's all these guys sitting on the bus and they've all got a newspaper in front of them. So it's like, <clears throat> whatever your era, I think distraction and attention is the issue more than the actual gadget. Like if you've got control of your attention and you're kind of in a position where it's like you are master of your ship in that way, <laughs> however you want to put it. <laughs> It doesn't matter what you're distracted by because you have the ability to to attend to what you want to attend to. Um, you know, I think everybody's at different levels of this and I don't know, you'd have to be a Zen master to be completely in control. But I think that that is kind of the worthy goal as opposed to um, just getting rid of your cell phone or something is that you, you kind of like you master yourself and and get control of your um, of your attention. Yeah, I think that's great advice. One thing that I kind of notice or pay attention to is in public places, uh, say you're waiting for something, whether that's the DMV or the bank or, you know, you're you're uh, in a clinic waiting to see the doctor or whatever it is, most people just have that straight to the phone to kill that time. And you had mentioned it earlier, Doug, about boredom, like Mm -hmm. embracing those five, 10, 20 minutes of just sitting quietly and not getting on something like your phone to pass that time. It it really is a practice. It it takes discipline for sure. Mm -hmm. But also just to observe other people doing it. Like I find, you know, especially in a place like an airport, you know, everyone's got their neck bent. They're just looking at their phone. There's no kind of even making eye contact anymore. That's something that's, that I've really seen over the last 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. 
Tupper where people just can't be. <laughs> Excuse me. I think I know what you're saying there, <clears throat> Erica. Um, but um, yeah, I think uh, what it comes down to is is kind of the um, the the like I was saying the the ability to kind of like control your own attention. Um, obviously, like the smart devices and the computers and all that kind of stuff are making more of a demand on us to. Um, get control of our attention and to uh, to be more proactive on that front um, but yeah I think you know generally we're just these these we're put in these machines and we don't really know how to use them I'm talking about our bodies and like it's 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 becoming more apparent now I think because it's becoming more extreme um, but we don't know how to control our attention and I don't know that we ever necessarily did um, you know I think that um, that it is something that you have to consciously decide that you're going to take control of and control it. I don't think that it is just something that we, you know, it's not like walking where it's kind of like we just, it automatically kind of, you just learn it and you go. Whereas yeah. focused attention is, is, is much more, uh, you have to be much more deliberate in learning that. And you can, you can see that because, any Eastern philosophy, Eastern kind of uh, religious practice, they're very much based on these concepts. And mm -hmm. if, if before the technology era, everyone had it, then why would you need Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching, <laughs> the Buddhist philosophy and whatnot? Yeah. yeah, it's something that humans aren't endowed with just for the fact that they're born. Uh, it seems that it's, it's part of the human condition. Uh, to become distracted and kind of lack attention and be a bit stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of like a job that we have to do. We, we have to, everyone has to take responsibility and I guess, um, you know, try, try to do that while they're here on earth, I guess. Yeah. So we, we do have a, a few solutions that we could share here. We can stay on task and <laughs> paying attention. <laughs> um, one of them, like you both mentioned, was meditation and, you know, practicing breathing or being in the moment, you know, and, and we could do a whole nother show on meditation. But um, yeah. just even starting with uh, that idea of, you know, dare I say, mindfulness, like, pausing in that moment especially when you're starting to feel overwhelmed and just taking a few deep breaths i mean in through the nose out through the mouth you know 10 breaths to kind of regroup your mental capacity but also your your physical capacity and your energetic nervous system mm -hmm. and you know um i know doug you have a EE or Aerolis certification to um, teaching, helping people kind of just embrace that. And it is really a practice. And, and I, I always tease because I do teach yoga and I part of yo the yoga practice is actually 
the most important part is the breathing, but just um, trying to be an example, setting an example. So if you're leading a class, you know, you're not frantically running around, but just trying to be calm yourself and, and, and finding where your focus is going to be for your students, but setting that example. And for me, I mean, the EE has been a life changer just to, to come back to some sort of base calm, really, more than anything. And, you know, a lot of people think mindfulness is kind of woo-woo, or, but it's really more about concentration and your ability to try and quiet your mind and focus your attention on the present moment and at least slowly start to dismiss distractions. And I always tell people, start with a minute a day. I mean, you got to be realistic, right? <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. Because I think people tend to set aside, um, you know, I'm going to meditate for half an hour, <clears throat> which is a worthy goal. But, but you know, a beginner is not going to get there. They're just going to sit there and have their mind wander for, for 30 minutes. I mean, I would do that. <laughs> and I, yeah. I tend to <laughs> so meditate would I. every day. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think setting out... Um, a more uh, reasonable goal and yeah, a minute, two minutes like that. That's, that's a good thing to kind of start with and just trying to bring your attention back to, you know, the breath or the body or um, uh, if you've chosen like a mantra or a a phrase or something like that, a prayer, um, just kind of keeping your, your focus, focusing your attention on that, noticing when you've come away from that and you're not paying attention anymore and then bringing it back. And it's just doing that over and over and over again. It's like you're building up a muscle, a muscle of attention. Exactly. I think physical exercise is probably good too. I mean, we have done shows in the past about exercise and, but even taking a walk, um, even if you live in an urban area, you know, just not taking any gadgets with you and, um, focusing on the environment around you just for the sake of taking a walk instead of having, uh, you know, the intention of I'm going to burn calories or I'm going to lose weight, but just to actually be in the moment of walking and what that requires to just even navigate in your sphere of existence. Yeah. Well, I think the, the physical exercise, I mean, we talked about this when we did our running show recently, um, but that exercise actually has a lot of brain benefits um, that people don't tend to think of. It's like you were saying, it's like people are thinking of burning calories or building muscle or, you know, getting physical conditioning. But I think that that exercise actually does have a lot of brain benefits. And, you know, some of them have been kind of quantified and they say, you know, by, you know, it increases learning by this percentage by doing kind of high intensity exercise uh, before a learning task. But I think that in general, as people just kind of exercise, there's kind of intangible kind of qualities to it. And I think that attention is one of those that you kind of, you can't necessarily quantify it and say, oh, I've been uh, exercising for three weeks and my uh, attention has improved by 67%. It's like, no, (laughs) you can't necessarily say that. But I I find that when I, I started doing more exercise that I did have... I don't, it's it's hard to put my finger on exactly what it is, but it was a much more mental than physical necessarily. 
um, you know, maybe you could say clearer thinking or more presence or something along those lines. But I, I do think that um, that there is the, those kind of benefits. So attention could be one of those. I think long term, <clears throat> what I know is <clears throat> is doing exercise um builds discipline because a lot of the time you don't want to do that but you you put yourself through like intentional suffering and that takes determination it takes willpower and i guess attention also takes willpower to some extent yes. i don't know if i don't know if they're part of the same brain region or whatever but it feels like it takes willpower and discipline to focus attention on a task and it seems like you use the same kind of thing to go and do exercise when you really don't want to do it. So if mm-hmm. it's like a muscle, then perhaps by doing other things which operate on a similar mechanism may improve attention in that way. So I guess it's it's trying to be disciplined, be intelligent in many aspects of your life, which may indirectly improve your capacity to focus your attention your attention without you necessarily intending on doing so. Mm-hmm. That's what I've personally found I could be wrong, but it seems that that would make sense. Yeah. So it's not just a simple thing of, okay, I'm going to do this to improve my attention, but actually making lifestyle choices, making lifestyle shifts <clears throat> based on knowledge, based on truth, based on, uh, you know, not doing what is expedient but doing what you know to be the right thing to do to using mm-hmm. discipline. I think that that I, I, I believe that that is going to have effects on your attention. Yeah. Well put. I think that's very true. And you always feel so much better afterwards, even though getting to do it and, and committing to it and, and following that discipline afterwards, you always feel at least I do calmer, more a, ability to focus, more ability to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing too is neurofeedback. Yeah. It's interesting because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like people are trying to use technology in a lot of ways to improve things like attention and focus and that sort of thing. And, you know, I would, I was doing a bit of reading on this kind of stuff and a lot of them are kind of gimmicks. Um, in fact, there was one writer, um, well, it'll probably Caroline Williams was her name, um, is her name. And she's, she's actually written a book about this. And unfortunately I don't have the title in front of me, but you can look her up, but, um, she actually did, a whole year of trying different techniques for kind of improving her brain, improving her attention, improving her focus, that sort of thing. Um, and she was saying that a lot of the things like the, the kind of the brain games that you can get on your phone as apps and stuff and on your computer, apparently they might be fun, but they're not particularly good at training your attention and those sorts of things. Like, you know, they'll quote studies and say, uh, oh, this study shows that this improves attention, but the study's not on the game itself. So um, a lot of times they're just using these studies to kind of try and sell something but then there's the the neurofeedback aspect of it which you know isn't just like a a, an app on your phone or something like that it is actually a more uh intensive piece of equipment um and i've been doing it for uh the past little while 
um, well, actually over a year now, um, and found it actually is, is a, a pretty amazing thing. Um, it's basically the idea is that your brain is getting direct feedback um, on what's going on. We actually, I mean, we've done entire shows on this before. Um, one show in particular where we interviewed um, Dr. Valdine Brown, who is the inventor of a system called Neuroptimal. Um, which was a fascinating interview. Um, highly recommend people go to check that out. You can go on to uh, SOTT dot net and do a search on uh, uh, Valdine Brown or Neuroptimal, and you'll find uh, you'll find that interview. It was very very interesting. Um, but yeah, anyway, there are they are actually getting better and better at having these technologies. Um, that actually can have some benefit and actually improve um, improve you in some way. Yeah, I, I was doing the NeuroOptimal as well, and I did notice, um, as I shared earlier in the, the show, this I have this tendency to hop on that hamster wheel and just go, 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 and it really kind of reprogrammed a lot of that, that there, there's okay in my mind to have moments of quiet and, and really not do anything, you know, mm. sit down and actually read a book with my full attention in the book and, and stay present. And it's mm -hmm. very subtle. There, the, the effects I feel for me were very subtle, but definitely noticeable. Yeah. So Navigating this crazy world can be a little intense, as we all know, and little things help, as you both have said throughout this show, just small little things that you can do to try and, and find that deep work and, um, you know, limit your distractions, uh, try and have moments of silence, even listening to music, uh, maybe music you don't normally listen to and just kind of focusing on the different instruments and the different things that are happening and being outside in nature, just observing the flowers. Spring is coming. So it's an opportunity to see your environment change subtly if you're paying attention, right? Yeah. So I think we've covered as much as we possibly could in this span for now. I mean, there's yeah. always new and interesting information coming out. So um, we do have a pet health segment with Zoya, and it is about doggy dementia. Oh. segment of the Objective Health Program. This week's topic has to do with our beloved senior dogs. Just like humans, they may not be as fast and agile as they were before, but they are no less loved. Unfortunately, many of the dogs also suffer from the declining brain power or cognitive dysfunction. In other words, it is being called the canine dementia. And in many cases, it is being undiagnosed in dogs that could be helped. So watch the following video to learn more about it. And also, don't forget to stay till the end and watch a funny video. Have an awesome weekend and goodbye!
As our pet population ages, much like us, senility in dogs is becoming a pretty common diagnosis to make. The scary thing though, is that senility, dementia, or canine cognitive dysfunction often goes unrecognized or untreated. Join me as I go through the facts of senility, the diagnosis and progression of this disease, as well as how we can try and treat or even prevent it. Hi, I'm Dr. Alex from ourpetshealth.com, helping you and your pet live a healthier, happier life. So if that's something that you're interested in, make sure you're subscribed. Now, to start with, just how common is senility in dogs? Well, it's more common than you might imagine. Estimates vary from a whopping 60% of dogs over eight years of age showing signs to a more modest 14%, although that's still a huge number of dogs if you actually stop and think about it. The scary thing though is in the study which gave a 14% estimation, only 2% were being diagnosed. And this means that senility, more accurately known as canine cognitive dysfunction, is going undiagnosed in a huge number of senior dogs. So which dogs are at a higher dementia risk? Well, while the frequency of senility is in all dogs over the age of eight, as a dog ages, the risk becomes higher. In fact, the average age of those suffering with this debilitating disease is between 11 and 12 years old. The older your dog is, the more likely they are to develop senility. Now, it used to mean that this would only be very old dogs we'd be considering as suffering from dementia, but our dog population is getting older, and so it's not unusual for big dogs to live to about 14 years old, and smaller dogs maybe around 16. Senility has been shown to have little effect on life expectancy, and I'll discuss the prognosis in a little bit more detail later. And so this means that it's more important than ever that we recognize and treat canine cognitive dysfunction as soon as it starts to develop. So all dogs are at risk, whether they're big, whether they're small, male or female, every breed is at risk as well. So if you have a dog, this is definitely a condition that you need to be aware of. Now, what causes canine cognitive dysfunction? Well, senility in dogs is actually very similar to Alzheimer's disease in people, and dogs have actually been proposed as a model for the study of early stage Alzheimer's disease. This is in part due to the formation of what's known as amyloid plaques within the brain, and these are proteins which are deposited um, between nerve cells, and it effectively stops them talking to their neighbors properly. So genetics plays a role in this, although we don't have any way to predict which dogs are at a higher risk of suffering from senility than others. There are other risk factors though, and they all relate to just general body health and lifestyle. So excess free radicals, which is um, formed due to inflammation um, or reduced antioxidant levels cause damage to the brain. Now, blood vessel narrowing also reduces the flow of blood to the brain, and that reduces the vital supply of glucose to nerve cells. And overall, this means that a dog who is unhealthy, who has a chronic inflammatory condition, maybe like um, dental disease, or is fed a diet low in antioxidants, may actually be at a higher risk of senility. So what are the symptoms of senility in dogs? Well, sleeping during the day and restless at night, disorientation in, in the home, anxiety or fear, a reduced interaction with the family, house soiling, aimless wandering or pacing, and an increased time spent sleeping are all common symptoms. Um, and one of the hallmarks of the repetitive behaviours that I've just mentioned is the fact that a dog with senility will easily be able to be distracted from performing them. So if, for example, your dog is pacing and won't stop no matter what you do, the chances are they have a different compulsive behaviour which is not a result of senility or dementia. 
Now, as you can see, some of these behaviors might easily be passed off as just normal age changes or of little concern, and that's partly where the problem of underdiagnosis comes in. If we stop and think about the impact they have on a dog's quality of life, though, you'll realize how much of an impact canine cognitive dysfunction can actually have. So how is senility in dogs diagnosed? Well, unfortunately, there's no simple test we can run to diagnose senility. It's what we call a diagnosis of exclusion. And that means that we rule out all other potential causes and we're left with senility as the only or the most likely diagnosis remaining. The more symptoms a dog is showing, the higher the chance senility is the cause, especially when they develop in an older dog. Now, one symptom should make us suspicious and two or more makes the likelihood of senility much higher. A useful word to remember to raise the possibility of senility in your dog is DISHA. So D is disorientation, I interaction reduction, S sleep-wake cycle changes, H house soiling, and A activity changes. Remember these signs will often be very subtle to start with. So how do we treat dementia in dogs. Well, if you're thinking there's little we can do for a senile dog, then I've got great news. Brain function can be greatly improved in dogs suffering with senility. If it's caught early, a few simple changes can make all the difference. So in mild to moderate senility cases, that can be treated with um, antioxidant supplements like um, SAMI and milk thistle. Ginkgo biloba is a herb that may help improve um, brain blood supply and improve brain function. A diet rich in medium chain fatty acids or fatty triglycerides and they're converted to ketones which is an alternative energy source for the brain and also omega fatty acids may be beneficial which help improve antioxidant effect and then encouraging interactive play using puzzle toys and food puzzles and also just teaching your old dog new tricks for more serious senility though or where a more aggressive approach is preferred then drug therapy can be started and there are a few options here, although licensing depends on where in the world you live. So there's selegiline, which is an Alzheimer's drug, and propentophylline, which improves blood supply to the brain. Now in future, immunotherapy may be something that we're talking about. Um, it's, a, it's got evidence for working in Alzheimer's, and because of the close similarity with Alzheimer's disease, even more effective treatments may develop in the future. So, you know, really watch this space. So while the simple treatments could be started without consulting your vet, if you suspect your dog is becoming senile, you should definitely take them for a checkup because it might be that a completely different condition is causing the problems that your dog is showing. So an example would be that a reduced interaction could be due to arthritis um, or urinating in the house could be due to diabetes. There may also be reasons why certain supplements aren't suitable for your dog. So definitely getting them checked out by the vet is important. So with all this talk, what's the life expectancy on prognosis? Well, while we have several different treatment options available, there is no cure and like many senior dog diseases, dementia, senility or canine cognitive dysfunction is progressive. Some dogs will respond very well to a thorough treatment plan. Others, unfortunately, may not gain much or any benefit, especially if their disease is already ad advanced in itself. By itself, canine cognitive dysfunction does not affect life expectancy. It's not a fatal condition, and so your dog should live for as long as they would had they not developed this disease. The issue though comes due to quality of life. If your dog is constantly unsettled, if they're anxious, or even if they're fearful, if they're spending all their time pacing or disorientated, if they're constantly stressed by having accidents in the house or whenever they're left alone, then their quality of life might become significantly compromised. And this might all mean that you decide that the best thing for your dog is to end their stress or suffering. 
Euthanasia is never an easy decision and it's something that I discuss in much greater depth in my video all about the questions to ask when deciding if that is an appropriate decision to make for your dog. So if you have any questions, please leave me a comment down below. And if you have a senile dog, then let me know what treatments you've tried and how they have or they, how they haven't helped your dog. I'd really love to hear. But until next time, I'm Dr. Alex from Our Pets Health, because they're family. Thank you, Zoya. That was very helpful. I, I have a dog that's going to be 15 next month, and I think that she is displaying some of those signs of senility, uh, <laughs> mainly just standing in the corner looking at the wall <laughs> uh, without moving. But, you know, she's had a really good life, so mm. can't complain. <laughs> well, thank you, Doug and Elliot, and all of our listeners for checking out our objective health show today. And uh, we look forward to another topic next week. Have a great day. Bye everybody. Bye everyone.